Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. When he had gone out, Judas, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. Isn't that a strange thing to say after he had just told Judas, go and do it. And the next statement is, Jesus says, now, the Son of Man is glorified. I'm going to read this section to you, which is a little murky, and then we'll untangle that for you. Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. The simple explanation of that is this, that Jesus said this is the moment when the Son of Man is glorified because he was obedient in his mission. That glorified God. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. Then he said, If I glorify God, then God is glorified in me and glorifies me. So if you follow this through, you have this interaction. If I glorify God... God glorifies me, and if God glorifies me, I glorify God. Who glorifies me? Who, in turn, glorifies God? So it's this back and forth. Who starts this process? You do. When God is happy, everybody's happy. To borrow from a phrase you're probably familiar with. If we have a personal application of this, the best way to find the blessings of God is to bless God. Start the process yourself. If you bless God, God in turn blesses you. If you glorify God, then God is glorified in you, and he blesses you. If you honor God, God will honor you. So when people are sitting around and wondering where the blessings of God are in their life, did you stop to consider the last time you blessed God? Or are you considering where your life is? Have you ever considered that one of the biggest impediments to God's blessing in your life might be you? Now, I don't want to get over into the mistaken notion that we 
earn things from God. But it still remains a fact that if you don't honor God and bless God, how can you expect Him to honor you and bless you? So we have to monitor our life for those things, don't we? Bless Him, and He will bless you. The second thought in this passage is that glorifying God is not a one-time act. It's an ongoing thing, like much of Christianity is. Now, we have some sister denominations. We are the Assemblies of God. We are a Pentecostal denomination. There are other Pentecostal denominations. And some of those sister denominations differ from us a little bit in some doctrinal areas. The Church of God out of Cleveland, Tennessee, has always been considered somewhat a sister denomination to us. But there is a distinction we have in doctrine. And that is, the Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, believes in sanctification as a definite second work of grace. Now, did that just go over your head? You know what I'm talking about? Let me explain it. They do believe that there is a definite moment when they can experience sanctification and declare, at this point, I have been sanctified. It's done. It's over. It's through. It's complete. The work is done. That's a little bit strange for us to comprehend because it is so subjective. In other words, how do you know? Where's the evidence? So we, the Assemblies of God, don't believe in the instantaneous act of sanctification, definite second work of grace. We believe that the Bible teaches a progressive sanctification. We are growing and evolving into what God wants us to be. Some grow faster than others. Some don't grow so well. But we believe that to be a process. We believe many things in Christianity to be a process. I am working out my salvation. As much as I would like to believe that I have confessed Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, and I am therefore saved, and I am headed on my way to heaven, being from a non-Calvinistic background, I would say the jury's still out on this. It depends on what I do with the rest of my life. Because if I'm going to walk away from him and desert him, I don't think that trip to the altar is going to do me any good. I still have to be faithful to the end. It's a process. So glorifying God is a process in your life. And when Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, because he's glorifying the Lord, what he's alluding to is he is still in the will of God. Where he finds himself at this point, he's tracking right with God's plan for his life. Whenever he is sitting and having this meal with his disciples, and he is really just moments away, for all practical purposes, from Calvary, the cross, the great sacrifice. He's headed in the right direction. His life is glorifying God. So you do this every day. You must glorify God every day that you live with every conversation you have, everything you do, everything you think, continuously glorifying God. 
We glorify God not by the things we accomplish as much as we would like to think maybe that would be the case sometimes because it's always nice to think back on the great things we've done for God. What are you doing now? The history's gone. Westside's an interesting church. How many of you Westsiders know that? When I first came as pastor, I had a parade of people who came to me and told me what they used to do in Westside, most of which were doing nothing in Westside now. I don't mean today, but at the time they were talking to me. They could talk at length about how they were involved in some aspect of ministry years ago. Interesting. What are you doing now? Nothing. Why not? I've already done my part. It never, I couldn't re-motivate. It was already put in park and the engine was shut off. It was done. Then begin to motivate other people. And then some never quit. I've got a group of you here that you was involved in. You're involved now. You're going to be involved when I'm dead. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're just, you're, that's just you. You are. Interesting. But it, it's an ongoing thing to glorify God. We cannot glorify Him with our past accomplishments. We glorify Him by our daily, ongoing obedience. Now, Jesus was facing a more difficult trial than any human being would ever face. He was about to endure the agonies of his trial, the mocking, the beating, the scourging. He would carry his cross to the execution site, be fastened to the heavy timbers and suspended by three nails. But he was willing. He was prepared. He was going through all the way. His heart was fixed. His attitude was right. And he knew his father had his back. He sensed his father was pleased, and he said, now the Son of Man is glorified. Because all these elements came together for him. I'm tracking in the right direction. I'm doing what pleases the Lord. I'm glorifying him, and he in turn is pleased with me. Everything is great. Life doesn't get any better than that. I don't know when the last time you have... Woke up in the morning with the misery and the burden of heaviness and heaviness of realizing you're not where you ought to be in God's plan, what God wants for you, maybe in just obedience in life. And you've got to live that whole miserable day wondering when it's all going to come crashing down for you. I hope it's been a long, long time since you've sensed that. Because I think there's more of you here today that wake up and you take comfort and joy in knowing that you're glorifying God. This day I will glorify you, Lord. I will magnify you. I will please you. That doesn't mean life isn't going to be difficult. You see what Jesus was facing? You might have some real tough stuff lying ahead of you, but if you're prepared, your heart is fixed, you're going to go through it, you know God's got your back, then you can say, now is the time that my life is going to glorify God. 
Glorify him with everything that is within you. Glorify him every day. It doesn't matter if others know whether you are pleasing God or not. It doesn't matter what their opinion is about whether you are pleasing God or not. You're not obligated to convince anybody. But it is vitally important for you to know between you and God that you are glorifying the Father and He in turn is pleased with you. Having the Father's pleasure is the only thing that matters. If nobody else approves of you, it only matters that God approves of you. I can do without the applause and the approval of man, but I cannot do without the approval of God. I must have His pleasure. Number three, God strengthens me when I glorify Him. And that's where Christ undoubtedly found His strength to continue on the path that was set for Him, knowing that if I glorify God and God in turn blesses me and glorifies me, I have the strength to face today. We need that. If Christ can face a cross because it pleases the Father, I can face my trials because it pleases the Father. And when pleasing the Father is my highest ideal or yours, then it strips away this temptation to give up because I'm personally inconvenienced. Life gets tough. And sometimes we look around looking for the exit door. How do I get out of here? I don't like this. Sometimes people, when they get under that kind of pressure, think that quitting on God somehow helps them escape from the difficulties of life. Most of you are smart enough to know that just doesn't work. You can't just give up on God and think, life's too hard, I'm tired of trying to serve Him, I'll just quit and life's going to get a whole lot better. Where is the person that can testify that's the truth? You need God for everything you're going through. You can't give up simply because life is difficult. Face your trials and declare, now will God be glorified in my life. I will go through this and I will honor Him with whatever comes my way. I won't desert Him. I will honor Him. I will bless Him. Point number two. Jesus said, I give you a new commandment speaking to his disciples, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And what Jesus has done here is taken this principle that he has been teaching his followers all along. We've seen it as we've studied the life and the ministry of Jesus from John's account. This is a repetitive principle. We saw it when we taught on the Sermon on the Mount. One of the prominent things arising out of that was loving God, loving each other, loving your neighbor as yourself. So this has been a principle, tenet of the faith, a foundational truth that Jesus is drilling 
into his disciples. But he comes to this point, having already taught this, and he says, now I'm going to codify this and call it a commandment. I've taught you the principle. Now I'm telling you this is a command. No more monkeying around. No more mildly suggesting, can't we all just get along? I'm telling you, love one another. Do it. Don't fail. And he puts this as a summary of what he has just demonstrated to his disciples in the foot washing scenario. He showed them what it meant to love one another, declared his life was glorifying God, then he says, now the commandment is this. And using the word commandment is powerful because being from the Jewish heritage, they understood the importance of commandments. And he uses the word commandment, and he puts it in this genre where it's stern, it's fixed. Love one another. Now up to this point, they've camped together, traveled together for three years. And there are times we realize from reading the gospel accounts that they barely tolerated each other. We find the disciples, handpicked by Jesus, quibbling, bickering, jockeying for positions of importance. But Jesus, knowing that they would soon be on their own, at least with Jesus not physically there to referee all of their fights. Jesus, in these, these parting thoughts, these final thoughts at the end of his ministry, reiterates to his disciples, you men are going to have to get along. I cannot be here to settle your squabbles forever. You're going to have to get this. Learn to love one another. Now, when my boys were younger and only separated four-year increments, that can be a handful. Three-spirited boys. They were good boys, but they got on each other's nerves constantly, which in turn got on my nerves. They wanted to hurt one another. One time, they were threatening. I put them in a room. I said, go ahead and fight. Don't come out until one of you has won. They went in and made, made some sort of a peace tree. I, don't, I, don't, I, think, I think they got it. Another time, we were riding along in the car, and they just, it was a long trip. They just would not behave, fighting and bickering. Of course, they're sitting close together. They want their space. There is no space in the back of a car, and I've had it. I've had it. I'll tell you what. Here's what we're going to do. You're all going to hold hands for a while. Oh, they didn't like holding hands. They figured out they didn't want to fight anymore. If I'm going to have to love them like that, I don't want to hate them anymore. Now, you think Jesus ever got to the point with his disciples, he said, look, man, I'm just going to put you in a group hug for the next three hours until you can't stand it anymore. When you learn to quit fighting, 
quit bickering. Maybe we'll move on to something else. But Jesus knew that his disciples were not really getting along that well. And Jesus said, you have to remember, guys, when I'm gone and you have to carry this mission on, it is vitally important that you love one another. Because if you can't get along in this little group of 12 men, you cannot go into this world and minister and love the unlovely if you can't even love each other. I am commanding you, love one another. I don't care how much you hate it. In the midst of all their turmoil and strife, they had to learn to love one another. Now let's just think about the world we're living in. In the midst of all the turmoil and strife in this world, I know there are people that have a very simplistic answer. Can't we just love one another? Can't we just quit fighting? Can't we just love and respect each other? Well, it'd be nice if we could. But there's a, there's a heart problem. You can't just get people together and force them to hold hands, and suddenly the world's better. There's got to be a change in the heart. We will not have peace until the Prince of Peace rules and brings peace. Then we'll have peace. Until that time, we're going to make miserable stabs at it. But what a world we're living in. The heartbreaking truth is this. We are seeing division and strife. We can talk about America. It's around the world. But we can talk Amer about America. And the division and strife is bringing out some of the ugliest attitudes. You know it. You're hearing it. You hear it on TV. If you're on social media, you're seeing it. Ugly attitudes not only from the world. People are incredibly brutishly rude one to another when they're typing messages to each other. They didn't. I don't see them talking face-to-face -face like this, but put them behind a computer, and they are horribly rude to one another. Shocking. But what concerns me more is the attitudes that is coming from people that call themselves Christians. That's where I've really got my concern. There are groups in our nation today, movements in our nation today, that are taunting the rest of us with their violence and their hateful attitudes. There are militant groups, and they're very abrasive. There are people who are, are hate mongers, and they hate some people because of things like, like race and religion. Some hate all Christians. Some hate all Muslims. Some hate all black people. Some hate all uh, Asians, some hate all Mexicans. It's just, you know it's true. We've got this hatred going on. Some people hate other people because of a different political party affiliation. The hatred and the anger seems to be reaching a boiling point in our nation. That's not what puzzles me. What puzzles me is the self-proclaimed Christian who becomes a part of the hate talk. It doesn't matter if we're talking about, listen to me, Christians, I'm talking to you this morning. It doesn't matter if we're talking about radical Muslims who are slaughtering Christians around the world. There is no justification for hating those who hate us because that was the message of Jesus. I feel bad for what's happening. 
I feel bad for my Christians and brothers and sisters, but if you can't get a grip on this, if the only response you have is, I hate those people for doing this, you are missing the message of Jesus. We have to somehow learn to love those that hate us and pray for them because behind every one of those people that is hating Christians and doing these heinous things is a soul that is dying and going to hell and can only be rescued if somebody loves them enough to take the message of Jesus to them. It's the only way it's going to work. We can't just segment ourselves off into different groups and talk about how it's us versus them. And we Christians are going to have to get together and form a militia and take over this world. No, you're going to have to get on your knees and start praying for the salvation of people. That's what Jesus wants us to do. We can't come close to knowing how to love difficult people in the world until we first know how to love one another as believers and disciples of Christ. What Jesus did in preparing his disciples to go and take the world emphatically instructed them. They had to get their own house in order and quit fighting before they could tackle the world. They had to learn to love one another. They can't love the people of the world if they can't get over the little quirks and things that annoy them about their brothers and their sisters. Now how can we apply this? Let me apply it on a personal level. Talk about an individual level. You can't impact this world for Christ if you're in constant conflict with fellow Christians. There's no effective ministry you can have if your house is not in order. You can't have an impact on this world if you can't get along with your own family. If your house is in turmoil and your family can't get along and you spend more time criticizing one another and fighting, and bickering, and hating. You've got no effective ministry in the kingdom of God. You have to learn how to love there first before it can go any farther. And in the church. We cannot hope to have an impact on this world if inside the church we squabble, and we bicker, and we fight with one another. We've had very, very little conflict in this church in the 10 years I've been here. Very minimal. I, I don't know how to tell you how wonderful it is as a pastor to come to church and not have your stomach all tied in knots because somebody is causing problems. This is heaven on earth. I think I just thought of a new name for our church. This is a place where Jehovah God dwells. This is a place where the Holy Spirit dwells, abides. You know why he abides here? Because he likes peaceful places. He likes peaceful people. He likes loving people. And for years, as the pastor here at this church, I have ordained every one of you to stop conflict before it goes any farther. Stop it from the dark corners of the church where people are gathered over there and they're going like this. And stop it in the name of Jesus. Let them belong in the house of God. You know what? I think you got the job done because we don't have that kind of conflict in our church. We're not getting ready to split. We're not sitting on different sides of the church depending on which side of the issue you believe in. We love one another. We're getting along. And God takes notice of those things. I think it was Evie Hill 
that said, where two or three are gathered together, God said, I want to go see that. I think because it's such a rarity. But I think God comes to see that when he checks out Westside. Point number three, don't think too much of yourself that God might be glorified. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, and he said, where I'm going, you cannot follow me. But you shall follow me afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. And Jesus answered him and said, no, you won't. Most assuredly, I tell you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. In other words, Lord, I would die for you. No, you wouldn't. You won't even make it through the rest of the day. You not only would not die for me, you're going to fail me three times when confronted with the option of dying for me. So don't tell me how good you are. Don't think too much of yourself. Here is the shocking reality. God knows you better than you know you. Time and again, as John relates the story of Jesus, we see his disciples groping blindly along without a clue where they're going other than following Jesus. Time and again, we see them failing to understand as he puts little hints out. And they don't know what he's talking about. And here Jesus is alluding to his crucifixion and his resurrection. And they don't understand. They, they can't comprehend this. And he says, you will not be able to follow me where I'm going. First of all, you can't be crucified with me. You can't go there. That's got to be me. Nobody else could be crucified with Jesus lest it made the whole account of the sacrificial death of Jesus a blurry mess. Who, who really died? Who, who was the most effective? It had to be Jesus only. There couldn't be a mistaken notion about who died to bring the salvation for it. It had to be him. You can't go there. Number two, if you could, you wouldn't because you just don't have what it takes yet to go there. Where are you going? I'm going someplace you can't go. And it was too heavy for them to comprehend. They didn't get it. They couldn't be trusted with the complete weight of the answer. So he just gave them a slight answer, a little hint. And Peter says, why can't I go with you? Don't you know I will die for you? And there was nothing wrong with Peter's intentions the kind of sacrificial devotion that Jesus had been teaching them. Be prepared to die for me. That should have been a good thing. In theory, this was great. Peter was saying the right words. But Jesus, reading his heart, said, you're saying the right thing, Peter, but your heart's not there yet. I'm so glad you think you will die for me, but I'm telling you, you're not there yet. Peter sincerely believed he would lay down his life for Christ. Until the whole crucifixion thing began to unfold. And Peter 
doesn't know what to do and he's he's standing afar as Jesus is being drug off to to uh, trials and and you know that this whole thing he's scared he doesn't know what to do so he's he's warming himself by the fire and watching this from afar this is the man said I will go and die for you but he's not and then somebody come up and said you look familiar aren't you one of those men that was following him, and Peter thought, oh, man, if I say yes, they're going to get me too. And he, and he began to curse and swear, it's not me, it's not me, it's somebody else. The man who was going to die for Jesus didn't have what it took. It was all talk, all show and no go. He overestimated his devotion to Christ, and that's something that I think is fairly common among Christians. Sometimes we believe we're ready, and we're not. Sometimes we think we are more godly than we really are. Sometimes we believe ourselves to be God's favorite people <laughs> compared to everybody else. Surely, God, you love me more than the rest of these. Sometimes we believe ourselves spiritually stronger than we really are. And God knows. That's the reason that we have to walk in humility. That's the reason it is foolish for us to think, I, I would never, you don't know. We talked about this last week, there but for the grace of God. We don't know. I think a wiser approach would be, God, I want to serve you. I fully intend to serve you. I don't know what the future holds, but give me the strength. You know me better than I do. Give me the strength to fulfill my desire, never to fail you, never to desert you, never to backslide on you. It's that haughty spirit that says, oh, I would never do that. That's the one that sets you up for the big fall. It's the humble spirit that says, God, I don't want to fail you. If you see failure in my life, help me, God, help me. I don't want to fail you. Most of us at one time or another have probably oversold ourselves to God. We've probably been very sincere. And we may have done it so innocently, but we've probably done it nonetheless. Lord, I'm going through. I'm not turning back. I will give my entire life for you. I would never deny you before men. I will do anything you ask me to do. Boy, how many times have people said that one? That's one of the stock ones we do when we first get saved. He saved me. I love him so much for what he did for me. God, I would do anything. Go to Africa. Except that. Think of something else, God. Quit your job and go to the ministry. And that too. Can't do that one. Something else, God. Give all that you have and follow me. Can't do that one either, but think of another one. I'll do anything else. Start tithing. Anything but that, God. Give me something else I can do. We oversell ourselves. Lord, you know how weak I really am. But I will do my best to serve you. Forgive me, God, when I fail. Help me when I falter. 
And if you're willing, use me to glorify you. Bow your heads.